we're talking about the Christian home. The Christian home. There's something here for everybody. There's something here for those who are not married or maybe not in a Christian home. Maybe you're a youngster and your parents aren't saved. You still have a role. There's something in this word for you. There's something in here for young people because young people usually live at home. Talking about things that affect, things that come from, things that have to do with the Christian home. Now, this is our sixth message on this subject in this series. Psalm 101 and verse 2, Scripture says, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. At the end of it, he says, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. You probably don't know many people who do that, and you probably know far more who don't even try. It's almost like this is a verse in the Bible that you read and wonder about, but never deal with it, and you let it go. Because when you look around, you can't, in your own life, you can't look at very many people you know and see how this works. Not many people ever talk about things like this. I mean, when's the last time any Christians got together and talked about walking within their house in a perfect way or being a wise and a committed person to God to live on his terms? That's what wisdom is. He that heareth my words and doeth them is a wise man. But you don't hear much about that. You don't see much about that. The Christian home in general has been so far removed from Christian principles that you just let it go, it just begins to slide. And it's a weakened home because it's got a weak marriage. It's got weak principles, little application of godly things in the home, godly ways and godly ideas, little godly counsel, very little of a man leading in his house or a woman submitting to that leadership, very little of that. We just let it go and we just do the best we can and hope it turns out well. And if it doesn't, well, we're just the average American home. That's not Christianity. God never, ever gave us this word to get conclusions like that. This word is perfect. When God identifies a role of men and women in the Bible, they're perfect ways. You can't even make them better. You can't set any of them aside and replace them with anything because anything else is imperfect. When God says a man should do this, this, and this, and this, we mentioned three things that a man should do. A man is supposed to lead or rule in his family. He's supposed to teach and he's supposed to provide. Three basic roles, obligations a man has in his home. Now, you can't make it better. You can't say, well, instead of that, let's say that. No, these three things are sufficient for you to do everything in a way that pleases God and brings grace into your home. Anytime God adds favor to your home, it's like 1 Peter 3, you know, your prayers are not hindered because of the grace that flows into your house. And the grace flows when God is pleased. When things are done according to his will, the way he has described them to be done, you bring his grace and favor in your home, in your marriage, with your children, all your routines, things work. You have to fight over through some things because the devil always resists. But God's way is a perfect way. His word is perfect. His way is perfect. You can't improve on it at all. We've been talking about a man. And God holds men who are married to be responsible to bring Christianity in the home, to be answerable to God for the people in his house, to be a man who is the head of his house, a man who oversees the well-being of his house, who's concerned about the disposition or the attitude of his wife and his children. And he has to answer to God for all of those things because God has given him a word how that the home can be like heaven on earth. You can have uh, well with you and your family after you. Promises in her about a long life, honor your parents. That'd be a home thing. There's so many promises that relate to the home. The Bible has a lot to say about the Christian home. And remember, what you bring in here through that door and assemble in here tonight together is an assembly, mostly, except for the single ones, it's mostly an assembly of homes. If they're out of order at home, they're out of order here. If you can't live the Christian life at home, you're not qualified to lead in the church. Every man should want to be of such Christian stature that he is recognized and 
gets to in some way lead and be in charge and demonstrate. But I think a lot of men have abdicated their role and they've done that and the house has become less than what it should be because of the influence of this hour. The media, all the various articles that people write and what is portrayed on TV as a typical American home, which is often a single woman or two fussing, fighting people, her putting him down, making fun of him. I mean, people laugh at that. You know, here's this home where he's wisecracking and she is coming back at him, you know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody, isn't that funny? He told his wife, <laughs> well, you know, if in real life you had been that man, that wouldn't have been funny at all. If your wife was calling you some kind of a unnecessary name, you wouldn't think that was funny. One thing every married man needs is encouragement, whether he wants to admit it or not. And one of the worst things that happens to a man in a married situation is to be put down and ridiculed by his wife. Now, you make a lot of TV programs about that, and it seems to be so funny. Or you get all the little comic strips. I remember one growing up called Dagwood Bumstead. You know, and he was a bumbling whatever, but his wife was always wise and could always fix things. And he was kind of, <laughs> he went through life like that. And that's the stereotype that you get about a lot of youngsters today. They look at marriage, it's no big deal. You just do whatever other guys do. Girls beginning to emerge on the scene now as leaders in corporations and senators and potential presidential candidates and their principals and policemen and now they're soldiers. You know, women are out there where women want to be. And they've become, one word that describes it all is independent. They read these things in the scripture or they come to a meeting like this on this subject and they get very offended when you teach on these things because that's not the program in their hard drive. They can't see themselves surrendering their independence to let some man be the boss. They just can't do it because they've been told by the media and by the world and the educational system that you're smarter than men. You're more able to do it because men don't know how to do what they're doing. If it wasn't for women, this world would fall apart and things of that sort. And so a lot of attitudes have changed. So where it's difficult to teach on this subject, it's difficult to bring this forth in a marriage. A lot of women very sweetly listen to what their husbands say, but they do whatever they want to do. And a husband gets that. He understands it. You know, what good is it for me to try to bring Christianity to home and try to practice what... Brother Tom is preaching. I mean, I, they just ignore me. And that's been allowed to happen through the years. And that's been allowed to come into a marriage and into a home. And kids see that. If a young girl sees an independent mom doing her own thing, and especially behind her dad's back, she'll grow up with the same attitude and some poor boy will marry her. And he'll have to put up with that too. Until the Spirit of God begins to open people's eyes to see like I was Tempting to say, Sonny, you know, there's some parts of us are so fleshly because it's the exaltation of who I want to be and nobody's going to keep me from doing it. And you bring that attitude in a marriage, especially if you're a belligerent woman. Oh, man, you're bringing misery into a home. And a man can bring misery into a home, obviously, but so can a woman. And two people, two imperfect people that come into marriage that God puts together he didn't put them together as perfect. He brought two sin-laden, sin-scarred people, puts them together, and says, now, I want you to, to become one. And the only way you can do it is according to this word. Any other way is unacceptable. Any other prescribed way that man has, all the manuals you can buy in the bookstores and all the little study guides, nothing else is right if it doesn't speak according to this word. And that means that a lot of people that have been influenced by the world and by friends and everything else. They're going to have to give up a lot of stuff. They're going to have to go to the cross and die, and a lot of people just won't do it. It's not taught in the church. It's not popular, and because it's not popular and people are offended by it, preachers don't preach about it. And so everything just goes the way it goes. Nothing ever gets done. We grow, we die, we go to our graves and probably find that God was not at all pleased with all of our attempts at righteousness. Because probably the hardest place to be a Christian is at home. The hardest place to be that one who is a project of God is making holy is at home. 
and nobody knows you better than the people at home. That's why I've said so often, if you want to know if somebody's saved, ask somebody at home. I'll ask your friend. Ask somebody that doesn't like you too much. Are you a Christian? Is she a Christian? Is he a Christian? They're the ones that know you well. Ask your parents. Ask your children if you're saved. They know. Because the proving ground of Christianity and the proving ground of any ministry in the church is the home. Because that's probably the hardest place to put it all together. And to do it is evidenced by seldom do married people sit down and talk about their lives and their relationship with God and spiritual solutions to their marriage or their problems or seldom ever sit down and have time with the family talking about Jesus. It's an awkward thing. Men have never done that. They never felt like they were respected enough in the home that anybody would listen to them. And so they just throw their hands up and don't do it. And then we bring it all in here and the things get quiet and things get slow and it's sometimes very difficult. You wouldn't know this, but I would. It becomes very difficult to teach. And some of these subjects like this one on marriage or the home because there's such conviction and such a difficulty inside of wanting to adjust to that, it's just like, <clears throat> there's just silence. But my prayer today is that God would bring us conviction and that God would deal with us and make us see what he's saying and then give us a heart, the kind of heart that pleases him, a heart to be willing to do what he says. And that's what we want. So the only way to do that, as far as I know, is to teach that, call your attention to it, and then it's up to you as to whether you want to do these things or not. Now, we've been talking about men. Let's talk now about wives and women and their role and their calling. Now, if I labor on this subject more than the role of a man, we only did a couple of messages on that, there's more about the woman's role specifically than there is a man, as I see it. And listen, at the beginning of all this, never at any time must you ever think that a woman is in any way inferior to a man because she is really the key in the marriage as to whether or not the home will be in divine order. It's not so much a man. It comes down to probably the woman. For example, if she is unwilling to submit to her husband, to subscribe to his leadership and honor and respect and esteem him for what he is in the eyes of God. If she will not do that, he cannot be the head of his house. He cannot rule in his home. He cannot stand in front of his house as the leader because he's not. His wife won't let him. Now, when you have that, you have a tragedy in the home. You have things that are, as we call it, out of order. And when it's out of order, that's the cessation or the end of grace flowing into that home and promoting godly things, bringing the fulfillment of promises that God gives to a home. And so there has to be, at least with the ladies tonight, this understanding of your role and your calling, and then decide if you're single this tonight. You have to decide if you really want to get married or be as Brother Tom said, just stay single and you can bypass all these problems. All of you that want to stay single, say yes. All right, we'll go on. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 11? To begin with tonight about a woman's role, this unpopular subject of the biblical woman, we could have called it that. The main role and the main calling of a woman is the first thing we want to see. What is it that God has called her to do? Or what has he called her to be? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this wonderful verse here in verse 9. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman, does it say for the man? Well, let me ask you a question and just stay with Scripture, okay? Anybody that stares at me in a wrong way, you're in trouble with God. <laughs> uh, just stay with the word. Why was a woman created in the first place? I don't all of you answer because if you're wrong, I have to correct you. That wouldn't be good in public. Why did God say in Genesis 2 or 3 that he created a woman? Did not man have a need? A helpmate. In other words, man needs help. <laughs> you knew that. 
But there is something about a woman that when it's right, it connects with a man. When these two things are right, you get one super happy couple. When two people married become one, that is a unified one. There are two people, but it's a unified one. When two people begin to flow into each other and begin to think alike, have the same desires and aspirations, seeking the same goals, in agreement with each other. Boy, there's power there. When two people agree, they walk together. Not only do they walk together, but the Bible says, if any two of you agree as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them. You think of the power in your home when there is a need to be met, when two people on the same page loving each other the same way start praying together concerning one thing. God says, again, his grace and his power and his promises flow into that home. Things get done. Prayers get answered. But when one of them is not doing what they should be doing according to this Bible, but have their own version of what they ought to do, nothing works. You just got an existence without purpose and meaning doesn't go anywhere. But he says specifically here in verse 9 that the woman was made for the man. And then in chapter 7 and verse 34, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 34, at the end of this verse, see that down halfway through, she that is married careth for the things of the world how she may please her husband. Now, she cannot devote all of her time to study and prayer and seeking after God without duties and obligations to a man. She's free. But when she's married, you young girls must understand that when you're married, you're coming into marriage with the same responsibility to seek God and to grow and become a godly woman. But at the same time, now you have a role in fitting in with a man to help him to be a godly man. They become a vital part of his life and your family. And your relationship with him is going to affect not only your life, but the lives of your children. They will either adjust well, they'll be citizens for God's kingdom, or they will grow up, find friends, and do wrong things, and then you'll have a tragedy, and you'll mourn about that for a long time. That's happened too many times. I know what that's like. It shouldn't be. It doesn't have to be. If we can checkmate all of our little sinful ways now, even though we've been wrong for a while, if we can deal with them now, we can fix all of that. Wouldn't it be nice if every home that came into this place was in divine order? Every one of them. Let me say it again because y'all didn't hear me. Wouldn't it be nice if every home in this building, in this church, was in divine order? Thank you. And I want to make sure you heard that. The Bible says it is not good for man that he be alone. I will make a help meet for him. He made a woman for the man. She is to fit in with his plans, and she is to be his help mate, how she may please her husband. Essentially this, a woman's goal, her main goal as a married woman is how she may assist her husband and support him. Now, that seems today in light of all this modernized junk, demonic modernization of a marriage, that just seems like a real put down. You know, to submit to your husband means you don't have any mind. You can't do anything. You're just a dumb woman. And all you do is just whatever a man tells you to do. Bible doesn't teach that. Commentators teach that. God doesn't teach anything at all like that. Again, go back to what I said a while ago. It's such an important role that a woman plays that if she doesn't do it, her home is out of order, and her home is out of order because of her. She's a rebel. She imparts disorder to her home. She imparts disunity in her marriage, and she will impart rebellion to her children because they will be more geared to be like what they see than what they hear. And if a girl sees a mom get by with all of this talk and in-your-face stuff or name-calling, and, well, yeah, I want to be strong like that. But that's not strong. That's sin. If a young man sees his daddy, and, and I grew up with this, if a young man sees his daddy just yapping this and though about his wife but never does anything about it, he won't know how to be a man himself. He'll go into marriage without an example. Maybe like I was, he'll go in insecure, not knowing if he's supposed to be tough and if he's supposed to yield, what's he supposed to do? 
He never had a good example. Every Christian child deserves a good example of what they ought to be. There should be a godly father that leads the way. There should be a godly mother that teaches the way. And every youngster in the church should have that. Every so-called Christian home should be responsible to impart that kind of attitude to their children that you can be what God wants you to be. Look how God is blessing our home. I love your daddy. I love your mother. God put us together. We're not perfect people, but we love each other. And you demonstrate that love, always conscious that you're being watched. This is a kind of a home that where wise people are imperfect, but wisdom is prevailing here. You begin to live as best you know how what he is saying. And as you're taught more, then you refine it more. I just want to be all that a man ought to be. Well, you keep going. I just want to be the kind of woman that you want. I don't want my husband to grow silent and quit crying because I just buck his system. I don't want to have my husband, you know, quit talking to me about things because he's convinced that it wouldn't matter. You don't listen anyway. I've had conversations here through the years of men who told me that. She won't listen to anything I say. If I told her I was going to do this, she'd say, right. And if I did, she'd probably tell me how many verses I had wrong. Because she's spiritual and I'm not. She lets me know that I don't know what I'm doing half the time. Man growing up in an environment like that, he loses that keen love and affection for his wife. He keeps saying, I love my wife because you're supposed to. But as far as what's in his heart, it's just an existence. Two people live together. Kids don't see what they come to church and hear. And it's not good. It just isn't good. So we teach on this subject. As I've already said once, the key to this family being good is a biblical wife. You read 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands, even the unspiritual man you're married to, that, notice, if any obey not the word, I'm not going to say all you women that have a husband that doesn't obey the word, raise your hand, well, we'd have a war. But anyway... But listen to it. Even if any obey not the word, and she knows that, they also may without the word be won by what? The conduct, the behavior of the wife. Now, how can she behave properly unless she's a Christian? She has learned her way and she's living a life and she won't subscribe to the sinful things he may want to do. And he's aware of that. And he's really glad on the inside that she's got a higher power in her life that means more to her than he does because she's willing to submit to that higher power and then submit to her husband. That's what pleases God for her to submit to her husband. So things are going good here with this guy because he said if they have an unbelieving husband, that that husband can be won by the conversation of the wives in verse 2 while they behold. Does your Bible say that? while they behold your manner of life. I'll tell you something every man would like to say, just as every man would like to brag on his children, every man inside would like when he's around men, he's always glad to say, well, I married a good one. I'm pleased with my wife. I love her. Because so few men ever say that. How many times do men refer to their wives as the old lady? And she's not even old. He wouldn't tell her that, but he tells his bad, the old lady, I got to go home. The old lady's going to be cranky if I don't get there. So she's fixing supper and you know how women are. You know, you know why he talks like that? Because he's lost respect for his wife. And it could be he's lost respect for her because she likewise has lost respect for him. And they've let things slide. And what was once an emotional relationship has degraded into two people legally living together. And he pays the bills and she complains about this or that or he complains about the credit card and she's always this or that. Being a biblical wife is not easy. Again, you look at all the trends in the world, the way women are and the role they're playing and what was it? One of the political leaders of our government said she's been promoted from the kitchen to the Congress. Everybody just so happy. She says, I've been promoted from the kitchen to the Congress. And I thought, no, you ain't. You've been demoted. 
because you got no business being up there doing what you think you're doing. You see all of these new roles and these women preachers, they got TV programs now, they got jets and airplanes and they got house husbands and they got it all. They preach and uh, some of them, I guess, preach pretty good. A lot of people follow them around. Multi-million dollar ministries. And girls see that and well, maybe that's all right. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible might be outdated. Remember that? Bible might have been written in another time for another time. But as a Christian, you have to say, no, the things that were written before time were written for us now. Right. Nothing's changed except trends and attitudes and viewpoints. Women's lip, you know how when women's lip came, I mean women's lip, I'm sorry, when women's lip came out, women's liberation, the women were coming out. They were liberated. They took their apron from the kitchen and slung it in diapers and boxes. I'm liberated. And out they came into the world and have ever since then been making as many people unhappy as they can. Difficult, hard to get along with, super hypersensitive. If you say any little thing that even sounds remotely like you meant that wrong, you've got this in-your-face war. The loudest talking people I hear in public, it's not men, it's women. You ever heard two women yelling at each other in a store? And I think, why don't y'all go outside? Because I don't have to, man. It's just like we're liberated to the point that we can be obnoxious. Is that still a word? Obnoxious? Look it up in the dictionary. It's a real interesting word. You know what a noxious weed is, don't you? Ugh, offensive? Put the word ob on there and then see what you got. That's free, all right? But you know, women aren't perfect. And like men in a home, you put a misguided woman in a family who grew up hurt, grew up sensitive, was molested, treated badly, verbally abused, a lot of things, lots and lots of things have happened. She carries that into her marriage and doesn't get deliverance from it or not seeking deliverance from it. You will have a misguided home. I'm not saying you have bad people, you just got hurt people, flawed people. We all were. I was too. Flawed people. And the process of change, the work of God has been going on in my life since 1968. Sometimes it's been real slow, and sometimes I praise God for the good success. But we're all here tonight not because we're perfect. We're not here tonight because we know all the things we're hearing or the things that you're going to read. We're here tonight because God wants us to live according to his plan. That the only way Christianity can really be Christianity is to live according to his plan. And this is it. If you want to be a biblical and a godly woman, if you want to be a biblical or a godly man, you got to do it God's way. And for a biblical woman, let's begin the night with change. You have to change. Yeah, I know men do too, but we're talking about women right now. Change. I think the easiest person to change in a marriage is a woman. They seem to get saved first. They get eager about spiritual things first. They seem to discipline their life to reading things faster than men and more sincerely than men do. They learn that when they get married, they learn the cooking routine or when the babies come, they... I used to tell that my wife could hear a mouse run across the basement floor when the kids were babies. Now I can slam a door and she, you know, just keeps on going. <laughs> but women are made in a certain way. They're made differently than men are. They have this way of just knowing that nobody else is going to do this but you. You've got this to do. Your husband won't come home and cook. Now, you might as well get used to that because you better start learning how if you don't know how. And he probably knows you don't know how when he marries you. But I guarantee you, if you get a cookbook for Christmas, <laughs> you rebuke the Christmas part. And you say, give it to me for my birthday. And you get a cookbook as a gift. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I would be willing, I'm not a betting man, but I would imagine that there's a lot of people that used to walk this way who are back into Christmas, back doing all that stuff. And so if it would please you better, I'll say it again. If your husband sends you a cookbook for your anniversary, he's sending a message. 
He said, I can't take any more of them tenfold dinners. And you know, we can't eat pancakes every night for dinner, honey. We can't do that. And so there's this adventure that she has to get into about realizing to please her husband. He has a need for a good meal. And so she applies that to her life and she does that well. Any woman can do that. I think men can cook too, but I think it's a woman's job to cook supper in the house. Sometimes he has to, of course, but that's her job. She's a keeper at home. And that involves everything that applies to her home, the feeding of her family, the grocery list. Man isn't made to go shopping for groceries. My wife has sent me grocery shopping for three items. I come home with three sacks. I thought she was just going to get a gallon of milk and some this and a loaf of bread or something. Well, I saw a lot of things that I thought would be nice to have. <laughs> so a $5 trip or a $10 trip to the grocery store is $45. A wise wife says, well, we can use that. That'll be good. And then she goes on. <laughs> a foolish wife said, well, that's the dumbest thing you've ever done today. Why'd you spend all that money? What's wrong with you? Now, some men would just say, I don't know. I'm just dumb, I guess. Some of us would say, I'll tell you what, darling, you stay right there. I'll be back in about one hour. Where are you going, store? And this time he comes in with five bags. Now, holler some more. How many of you know that'd be a bad attitude? <laughs> Nobody I know would do that. I'm really glad about that. But a man is not as quick to change as a woman is. She seems to get things faster. She gets deceived easier, too, I think. That was in the Bible. But she's often the first one saved. She disciplines her schedules and does things easier than a man does. She's not as suspicious about things as men are. She'll believe a lot of things if it sounds good. She'll buy a car because it's red, not because it runs. And she just does a lot of things because that's the way she's made. And so it's easier, I think, for a woman to change. And I think that's why so much in the Bible is directed towards her in the home about things that must be done. And if you do this, this is what will happen. Certain things will happen. So the change brings out certain qualities in a woman, certain traits that a godly woman needs to have. Let's look at some of them. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 4. You're familiar with this. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, A virtuous woman, a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. That's one of her qualities. Now, we'll deal with virtuous woman, what virtuous, all the aspects of that later. But a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. Your Bible says that. But she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. I think it says it that way because the woman who shames her husband destroys the love that he has for her. He may act like he does. He may still respond to certain things, but he's lost his real care and love and concern. You know what? When a man marries a woman, he loves her. He saw in her what he wanted. He wanted to live with her the rest of his life. He was sure this is the right one, the right woman. She loved him, and they got along good. They liked to laugh about the same things, go to the same places, and laugh at the same old dumb jokes. And they get married, and if things don't get dealt with, it changes. I've seen it happen in far too many homes. It just changes. He no longer sees her as the kind of woman he married. Even though she goes to church and she's real spiritual, he doesn't see any virtuousness in her anymore. He just doesn't have any respect for it. But he wants a virtuous woman. Every man wants a virtuous woman. It's the kind of woman that a man really does want, a virtuous woman. I would agree with this definition that I got in the dictionary. The word virtuous means ethical, moralistic, noble, principled, righteous, and right-minded. Man, that's a load. Principled, not foolish thoughtful, thinks before she jumps. Sort of the opposite of an odious woman, of a hard, difficult, stubborn woman. But a principled woman is one who thinks. A Christian woman, especially with regard to her husband and things in the family, 
she has to think, in what way can I talk to him about this that would be beneficial for him and not be offensive to him or he wouldn't think me wrong in saying this? How many of you know there's some things you don't just blurt out? Man, you need to use the old word. How many of you know there's some subjects you just need to kind of pray about a way to say things? Well, a principled woman would do that. A woman with those kind of tendencies, she's the kind of woman that's virtuous. She does you good, as Proverbs 31 says, she will do you good and not evil all the days of your life because she's virtuous. There's not a young lady in this room who should not desire to be virtuous on biblical standards. Let me give you some of her qualities. Number one, she is teachable. She's a teachable woman. She doesn't know it all, and she's not willing to maintain her worldly ways while she's married because she knows she can't. So therefore, she responds to teaching. But the real test on whether or not a woman is teachable is what she does with what she hears. That's the real test of whether or not you're a teachable woman. What do you do with what you've heard? Do you stay as you were or do you change? Because if you change because you heard it in the word that God said it, then you are a teachable woman because the teaching has brought change. But now if there's no change, then I would have to say that she's not teachable. For example, if you teach on the subject of submission and she still doesn't, is she teachable? No, she's a hearable, is that a word? <laughs> she's a hearable, but she's not a doable. If all you're doing is gathering in information just to see, then you're just an academically minded person. A spiritually minded person hears with the intention of doing it. You know what the Bible teaches? He that heareth and doeth, giving them more earnest heed the things you have heard. What's the design of those things? To make you the way God wants you to be. We're not there yet. We're not all born into this kingdom with all the right things. We have to learn. We have to learn. And so she has to be teachable. Will she? Will she wear a head covering? That's one of the signs that she understands her role in 1 Corinthians 11. Is that still in the Bible? Wait just a minute. Let's take a pause for just a minute. 1 Corinthians. Yep. It's right there. And it goes all the way over to here. Wow, that's a lot of a chapter right there. 1 Corinthians 11. It talks about a head covering, yet it's largely ignored, not only by the world, but a lot of you in here. Because it's not something that you really want to do. For whatever reason, it doesn't look good on me. Uh, you know, I don't have the face for it. Or it doesn't match my gear tonight or something. Or maybe it means that in spite of what's said about it, you're still a rebel at heart. You're still not going to do it. I mean, whether or not you do it, you don't submit to God out of force. I'm not going to come out there with some kind of a stick. All I can do is teach it. As I said a while ago, once it's spoken, it's up to you. You can do whatever you want to with it. But if you want to do right, you do what it says. But these are just things that get in the mind and you have to deal with it. Nobody else does this. Where in the world do we go? Than anybody else? What will people think? They come in here and saw me without the... Well, what would they think? But then again, what would God think? Wouldn't he be pleased? Of course he would. He wouldn't have said it if he wouldn't be pleased. So she needs to be teachable. Secondly, she needs to be meek and quiet. Uh-oh. Like I said, I didn't write any of this, and I'm not trying to bother or hurt anybody, but I'll just make it gentle and quiet. How's that? Gentle and quiet. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. We were there a while ago. Gentle and quiet. These are the godly qualities in a virtuous woman. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 2 again. While they behold your chaste manner or behavior of life coupled with fear or reverence, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but here's what God wants. Let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek, and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. A meek and quiet spirit. How about in public? A meek and quiet spirit. A meek person is not one who's always trying to interrupt a conversation and correct everybody. 
Sometimes you just learn to be still. You do that in your relationship to God. Sometimes you just let God do all the talking and you listen. Sometimes wisdom would dictate that a virtuous woman is one who learns to be meek and quiet. Not loud, not dominating a conversation, not interrupting everybody when they're talking and injecting your ideas. It's not being rude or opinionated. It's just learning to be quiet, meek, and gentle. And I think every man would like that. But that's not what you see on TV. On TV, when you see these so-called sitcoms, which I call them stupcoms, they're just all stupid. They're all distorted. Where everybody is goofy. I hope this is not the goof-off generation. Because so much of what they show on air is really good to see in the movies. It's just goofy. It's either goofy or space invaders. It's just crazy. Men talk like women and women talk like men and I don't know what, they play different roles and everything's getting disoriented. It shouldn't be like that. There comes a time you have to shut all that stuff out. It really is, as we heard years ago, a trashy vision. You have to set all that stuff out and say, I cannot emulate that and think that's the way it is and it's okay because that's what the public wants from me as a woman. I'm gonna to have to do it God's way. That means the public's gonna disown me. But that's what Romans 12 says, be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And I believe this, and I believe this is true for men and women, the more spiritual you get, the quieter you get. I heard a man, if I mentioned his name, you'd all know him. He told me once, he spoke in our church. Heard him preach one night and he said he can tell who a spiritual man is because the more spiritual you get, the quieter you get. And the man who prays a lot talks little. Now, I don't know how he came to that, but that's what one man said. That might be true. But there's nothing wrong with a meek and quiet spirit. Somebody once said, wisdom has never been known to enter into a life through an open mouth. How about thirdly? Another trait of a godly woman or a virtuous woman, her biblical qualities, is that as wife, she wants to be, desires to be the wife of a leader. Her husband is known in the gates. She submits to him. She honors him. She supports him. She holds him up. Her life is all about what she can do in his life to make him the way God wants him to be because she'll be rewarded for this. And when a man has this kind of a home and has this kind of support at home, it's obvious that people gravitate to that person because their life is in order, their home is in order. What do you think? They say, how do you see this? Well, why would you ask me? Because I look at your life and it's in order. I mean, your family, your wife, your children, I mean, that's why people often have a certain amount of respect for people, even in the church. The home's in order, the house. It's not how skillful a speaker you are or how good you can sing or anything else. If these traits of the world are dominating your life, nobody has any respect for that, not spiritually. And so one of these traits of the leaders of a wife is in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11, where it says four things. Even so must their wives be grave. That means just real sad looking and sullen and like they're just on their last breath. In other words, the wife of a leader must go around looking like she just got ran over by a road grader. That's what grave means. It just means like this. And she should look depressed and forlorn. And how many of you know that's not true? If you listen to this tape, rewind it, because what I just said, I, that's not true. I'm making a point. The word grave here, there's four things. The wife, she said, must be grave. Not slander, sober, and faithful in all things. The word grave simply means to be dignified and respected. Dignified. Dignified, grave, and respected. Remember the verse in Philippians 4, 8, that verse that says, whatsoever things are, whatsoever things are, think on these things. Well, one of the words in that list in Philippians 4 is the word honest. I think it's the second mention in Philippians 4, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are honest. Well, the word honest, things you should think about, 
is what our word here is for grave. So whatever things are honest, she should be an honest, dignified woman. The kind of woman you just don't want to say bad things around because you respect this kind of a person. You know what I'm talking about. The kind of people that have that aura about them that they're walking in the right way. They're doing the right thing. They're honorable women. You honor them. The kind of people you want to honor. I had a school teacher once, Mrs. Hester. She was an older lady, but she's one of the few teachers I remember having in high school that I didn't act up in. I just respected her. I don't know why. Maybe it was because she gave away two pencils on Monday morning to the best student. I never got one. And she'd always pray over the class. She had this prayer on Monday morning in her first period of school. And you could talk about God then, and you didn't alarm the political world by doing that. That's been true with a lot of women that you know. She's a fine lady. Oh, man, no. You be careful what you say around her. You sort of have that about. That's the kind of woman that God's influence is all about. The second thing he said in verse 11 is not slanderers. Now, slanderers, it does a lot of damage. You know this. A slanderer is a gossip, tail-bearing, backbiting person. We have gotten by with slandering and gossip and fault-finding so much in our life that we're kind of used to it. We don't know many people that don't do it. Everybody usually has something bad to say about other people. I don't mean you can't talk about other people. It just doesn't have to be degrading or bad. There has to be a solution for every bad person you're talking about. There has to be some way that God can fix that. But we don't talk about that. We don't say, well, we ought to pray for him. We ought to pray for her. Man ought to act like that. We just talk about it anyway, sort of feel good about it. But it does damage. And especially, especially if you're at home around your table eating and somebody comes up and you start really berating somebody. Oh, I'll tell you why. Yeah, very well, yeah. Well, you know what I heard about? I heard he went down and did it. And, and, and you know who's listening to that? Your kids. You know what your kids do to that person? They have no respect for that person. A person in the church, what they just heard may not be true. Because it's something you heard. You don't know if it's true or not, but you said it like it was true. And your kids look at that person as though what they heard was true. And they lose respect for them. I won't mention where or by whom, but one situation I'm aware of in the family, the kids in the church talked about other people in the church and the parents didn't correct them because they've heard so much about them from their parents that they thought it was okay in agreement with their parents to talk about elders or older people in the church. Now, how does that promote oneness in a church? It doesn't. But that poison came out of the home. It's poisoned the minds of the kids because parents took liberties in doing the things that a godly woman should never do. She's probably the type when she's learning this herself, I don't know how she grew up, but let's say she's learning this and God's really dealing with her and she hears this kind of talk coming up from her kids about other people. She says, you know what? You don't know if that's true. We mustn't talk about that. We shouldn't talk about other people like that. You should pray for them. Now, what's a kid going to say to his mom or her mom? Nobody means more to you in the world than your parents. Nobody can influence you more, hopefully, than your parents. And when your mother says, you shouldn't talk about them like that. Those people might have problems that are over your head. I was telling my brother once. I was complaining about my mom, about, you know, my, my, and he said, wait a minute. My brother did this. He said, wait a minute. What if you were young, you were 25 years old, just had a hysterectomy in a bad marriage and difficult circumstances and broke to boot? How would you feel? And I had never put myself in my mother's shoes and tried to think of what I would do if I were in her shoes. I would have probably been worse. It doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean it's all right to have the problems that I was talking about. It's not all right. She didn't know how to deal with it. She never heard anything in her whole life until towards the end of her life. That little country church doesn't talk about these things. It's just a little place where all the good people go to just feel good about God. Well, feeling good about God doesn't mean you're growing. It just means you hired somebody to make you feel good about God, whoever he is. So she was never taught. She didn't fix problems in her life. My dad didn't either. Nobody ever taught him. It's very hard to 
avoid things like slander and gossip. It's very hard to avoid that when you grow up with it and you never knew it was devastating in a church or a family. Because I can guarantee you this, while you're talking about somebody else, I promise you somebody else is talking about you. Because what you sow, you reap. The third thing he said in 1 Timothy 3:11 here is sober. Now, sober means sober. It means you're not drunk for one thing, but it also, more importantly, has to do with being temperate, self-control, especially in respect to your passions and your feelings and your urges and things of that sort. She has all of those kind of things in control. She might have been ticked off about something and feels this urge to just, but she doesn't because she knows that's not one of the traits that a woman should have if she's going to have a man in her life that God is going to use in leadership. So she suppresses all this. She nails all that stuff to the cross. She puts that stuff to death. She won't allow that to happen. It means she's watchful. She's circumspect. She pays attention. One dictionary said it's that state of mind which is free from the excessive influence of passion, lust, or emotion. A woman who's in control. She doesn't speak her mind. Somebody who's in control. Remember the story I told you? I told them all once, twice, three times. Stopping, driving back from Vermont once in New York, asking for a cup of coffee, and the young lady gave me a large Coke. And I remember looking at that, I thought, that's a far cry from a small coffee. And I said, no, I wanted a small coffee. She said, you said a Coke. Of course, what I want to say on the inside is, I said a small coffee. I mean, you know, that's a war. So being the Christian, what do I do? I suppress my feelings and I say, no, ma'am, I asked you for a small coffee. And this ice nearly came out of that thing and just threw it in a bucket over there and got me a cup of coffee. Thank you. Where did she learn that? Who's going to marry that? Men, how would you like to wake up every morning and look at that? Make one little move, one little teeny tiny give me a coffee instead of a Coke move. And you got a war, a major war on your hands because she's seen that in her own family. She's heard that from her friends and she's like that. And I'm saying she can't come to church and get saved because hopefully she will. And if she gets saved, she's still like that. Because those urges that were trained by the world are still in here. She doesn't even know how to deal with them until somebody teaches them. When somebody teaches it, she gets convicted about it. Oh, me, that's, ooh, I've done that. Oh, and then when she tries to deal with it, <laughs> and she has to work at crucifying her flesh. But she can. We can all change. We can all change. And a man would like to be married to a woman who is sober and in control, has self-control, and doesn't just fly off the handle at every mistake he makes, and he'll make a few or a bunch. Fourth thing is faithful in all things. Faithful in all things. A woman who has these biblical qualities is a woman who is worthy of belief or trust. You should trust a woman who is faithful. Her words are bond. She does what she says. Those are just four little traits mentioned right there in Timothy. Another one has to do with her appearance. How many know that one of the traits of a biblical woman has to do with how she looks? Say amen. Look at somebody and say, I said amen. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in flashy apparel. Does your Bible say modest apparel or something close to that? Now listen, modest apparel doesn't mean cheap. Doesn't have to mean cheap. It could mean God doesn't love you because of how much you paid for your clothes or what kind of label you got in the back of it. It just needs to be modest. Some people can afford better than others, but it doesn't ever mean you have a license to go beyond modesty. Somebody say amen. Thank you again. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. That would include tight jeans, shorts that are too short, belly buttons showing, tight 
upper apparel, cut low. Doesn't mean any of that, does it? The men are smiling and the women are getting mad, but let me tell you something. <laughs> Modest apparel is in your Bible and you've got it to deal with. All of us do, but especially women. He didn't say men, modest apparel. They could take a little bit of that too. Some of them that dress wrong, but he says here specifically that women. Women are usually the object of sexual thoughts. Now today it's changed so much. I don't know, it might be different today, but when I grew up back in those dark days, you know, the, when the wheel was invented, Guys talked about girls a lot, and they talked about who they saw that was dressed in an inappropriate way, which they liked dressed that way because it gave license to their lustful thoughts. They'll see what they see, and it's cut pretty short, and though they try to imagine what else everything was like, and so they talk like that, and it's lust. We saw some Amish people on our trip. You know, if you could look at some Amish lady and lust at the way, she, you know, then you really got a serious problem. <laughs> I mean, you really, really got a bad problem. Because nothing about the dress gave way to any specific thoughts about her body because it was covered fully. And you know what? There ain't nothing wrong with that. That doesn't get you to heaven. Heaven is not about clothes. But on your way to heaven, there is something said about clothes. And it says modest apparel. And modest means whatever does not incite lust. Now, I know there are problem men out there who would, you know, but generally speaking, you keep your body covered. Your body is a sacred place to God. It's a tabernacle of God. It's not to be abused. It's not to be advertised. It's not made to be a sex kitten for lots of men and to be popular in that way. It's not made like that. That's not what God said. He simply says, because now you're a Christian. One of the biblical traits that should follow you is modest dress. Now, it doesn't define in this Bible what modest is. You'll have to make that decision out of your own convictions. That's just like, how long is long hair? Is it down to here? Is it a quarter of an inch? Well, what if it's only one-eighth of an inch? Well, well there's eighth of an inch. You're not modest. Well, no, that's between you and your heart and your conscience about long hair, short hair, Modest clothes. But it doesn't take a very spiritual person to know that a lot of the way people dress today is not modest. And I'll tell all you girls here that your tight jeans are not modest. Not by any stretch of the imagination. And the reason I think a lot of people wear those kind of clothes is because of the influence of the world. That's what they do. That's what girls out there wear. And there's this desire to be like them. And that's not what you should want. They're going to perish, not you. You shouldn't be like them. Then the Bible tells us all that is of the world is of the devil. First John 2, 16. Well, he said two things about verse nine. One is shamefacedness. And modest apparel was shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. In verse 10, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Now, shamefaced is another way of speaking of modesty. It's a modest look. It's a modest appearance. It has to do with moral repugnance in demonstrating your body and the features of your body to anybody if you're married besides your husband. And there should be something that really turns you as a Christian off by either doing that, have the appearance of that, or making people think that maybe you're uh, one of them, like the girls in the world. That should really be a turnoff for you because shamefacedness is the kind of modesty that does that. And the word sobriety means sober-mindedness, moderation of desires, passions, or conduct. There's a certain way you act, and it's a line you draw that God draws, and you won't go over that line. It's just the way you conduct your affairs. You're not one of them, you're one of his. And this is evidence in your life. It's just part of the things that, one of your biblical qualities. I spoke Sunday about self and flesh. I think a lot of women want attention. Look at me, 
notice me, regard me, think about me, even though I'm married to somebody else, I want you to look at me and think about me. Well, I shouldn't have to do that. I think a lot of gaudy dress, now I don't know anybody that does it here, but I think a lot of gaudy makeup, and I remember there's a TV program once a man and his wife had a something over in North Carolina, and the first time I saw her, I forget, Tammy? Uh, her name was uh, something like Lammy or something, but, and the first time I saw it, I thought, what, is, is this a, uh, is this a what, what's, the, what's the play about? The eyes are false, and all the makeup, I think, what's behind all of that? You look at somebody like that, and you look twice, and you look again, and you think, instead of going, wow, what a lovely creature. Some of us think, you know, we leave the lovely off. <laughs> it's just not good. And I think tight clothes, clingy clothes, revealing clothes, seductively designed clothes. You think of that. Clothes that were designed to excite lust are the kind of things that a woman should avoid that will keep her from getting in trouble with the Lord and upsetting her husband if she dressed like that. No man, no man. There's not a man that lives that likes to go out in public and other men keep looking at his wife's bottom. No man likes that or his girlfriend. But if she dresses that way, he needs to have a talk with her, especially before you're married. And just tell her, you know, you don't have to do that. To, if you're trying to do that to dress, boy, I like this, I really would rather you look just more simple and plain. Yeah, I really would. I love you for who you are, not what you look like. I mean, I just like you as a person. I believe God brought you into my life. You don't need to add anything to that. You don't need to put all that paint on your head for me to say, wow, what a face. I'd rather see what the real you looks like. Nothing wrong with that. But if you want to be a godly woman, those are things you do. And finally, and we'll close with this one, in chapter Five of Ephesians, go back to the left, just a few pages, verse 22. One of the biblical qualities of a woman is her submission to her husband as an act of submission to God. Submission. Submission. It's a word which means to rank under. Paul said this, to let another's will govern you. That takes a lot. We don't see a lot of this. It does happen, but not a lot. Wives, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. It means that he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't always qualify in your terms. He eats too much. Uh, he's not very tidy and he's not active. It does, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Time out. You married him. God holds you to honoring that man and submitting to that man as demonstrating your devotion to God. Colossians 3, verse 18. Look at it. Same thing over there. Colossians 3 and verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. It's in other words, it's what God wants. And that's the way you prove your devotion to God by whether or not you submit to that man. I'm guaranteeing you there'll be times that man doesn't do right, doesn't act right, may not talk right, may be ignoring you, very insensitive to you, and just seem like he doesn't even care about you, but you, by vow, whether he is or not, you said, I will do this and I'll do this. If I married you, you said that. I mean, if I performed the marriage, you said that. And I say it that way because it's, I want everybody who ever gets married to know that this vow is a solemn agreement that you're making with a man in the presence of God and you're saying to God, in Jesus' name, I will love him, submit to him, honor him, revere him, esteem him, uphold him, all of these kind of things, I will do that. Because there's going to be days that you're just about to back off and say, I'll tell you one thing. And God will say, remember what you told me you would do with him? So I'm going to measure your devotion to me, but just how much you're willing to die to self and overcome 
and show me your devotion to me by how you love this man. Because again, he doesn't deserve this. He's got a loving wife cooking a good meal, keeping herself proper for him and learning and growing and, and loving him and good answers and quiet and peaceful. He doesn't deserve that, but he's getting that because she loves God more than she loves him. And if it wasn't for God holding her to this life, he wouldn't get that. It'd be like the average American home today where they're just throwing stuff at each other and cursing and making fun and mocking and putting down each other. But not in a Christian home because a Christian woman, she ain't like that. He might be a little bit like that because it said if you have a husband that does not obey the Lord in 1 Peter 3, he may without a word from his wife, not preaching to him, but as he beholds her chaste, modest manner of life, God turns his heart to him. All because of a godly and a wise woman. We'll say more about this next time. I'll give you something to think about. Amen.